0: I'm Garrick, and in the first half of this episode, our friend Josh Shetro returns to talk about Blaise Pascal
1: and apologetics that appeals to the heart. I'm Timothy, and Stevie Wonder is the star of the second half of this episode as we talk about faith, understanding, and Stevie Wonder's 1973 hit, Superstition. We also discuss how it was because of Stevie Wonder that I have one of my brothers-in-law. We already know that you're going to like what you hear
0: from Josh Atreau, and so we want to recommend two of his books to you, Truth Matters and Truth in a Culture of Doubt, both of these from our friends at B&H Academic.
1: To find out more about Truth Matters, Truth in a Culture of Doubt, and many other excellent apologetics resources, go to bhacademic.com. Click on Books and then click on Apologetics and Worldview. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, The Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll.
0: I'm Garrick, and our friend Josh Chateau is with us again today. Josh is theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church, executive director of the Center for Public Christianity, and author of several of our favorite apologetics books.
1: Many of our listeners, if they've even heard of Pascal at all, all they've ever heard of is his wager. That's all they know about, that's all they've thought about, that's all they know, and it's probably not the best entry point into Pascal's apologetic. It's a it's a skewed understanding if that's all you have from Pascal. And so, tell us about Pascal and tell us what appeals to you about Blaise Pascal.
2: Yeah, well, I mean Pascal in some sense he's developing in certain ways Augustinian intuitions and that's what I see him him doing. And so I mean for instance in Pascal he's recognizing again that we're not simply brains on a stick. We are these beings who love and he he has this paradox of well he has the ability to kind of get into the kind of existential anxieties of the human heart part of his apologetic is to get into that space and deal with you know he's really at the cusp there of of the modern world and so they're feeling certain anxieties that's new and he picks up on it really early and is exploring some of these things in his approach and so he's wanting to pick up on the paradox of both the greatness of humanity and the wretchedness and how we seek after justice but we can't get it and how we feel kind of alienated in our world. And so he's getting at this kind of these kind of existential categories in his own context. And I think because he is doing his own retrieval of Augustine, so for me pulling in Pascal who at times doesn't necessarily need a lot of translation, but needs some, obviously. But he's closer, he's even closer to us and some of the anxieties we feel than Augustine. But he's still, in some sense, doing his own retrieval of Augustine.
0: How have the apologetics of Pascal shaped what you have called the inside-out approach of apologetics?
2: Yeah. Well, the thing about Pascal is he didn't get to finish his great apologetic work. And so you have somebody like a contemporary Catholic apologist, Peter Kreef, who's kind of brought together and kind of brought a structure together for some of his penses. And that's Pascal's work that wasn't ever finished, but it's really what was going to be his magnum opus, Pascal died young. And so for me, it was more the the existential point and the type of kind of, in some sense, I feel like at times I'm riffing off of Pascal, but doing it with contemporary sources and exploring various things going on in our culture today. Whereas Augustine more is I see a, I see more structurally some similarities with with Inside Out and the City of God.
1: So, Blaise Pascal, at one point, in Pensées, which, as you noted, he he never finished. He died young, around thirty-nine years of age, if I remember correctly, and it was at least in part because of the fact he was so brokenhearted after the Roman Catholic Church condemned Jansenism, which was, in some sense, an attempt to retrieve Augustine and to apply Augustine's theology in in a Catholic context, and he was committed to the Jansenist cause and was brokenhearted when that was actually condemned. But he describes his apologetics method, if there's a place where he does, and he's not saying this, this is looking into the penses and saying, okay, this seems to be his statement of method, or at least something that influences method. He says, Men despise religion, they hate it and are afraid that it might be true. The cure for this, Pascal continues, is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Then we make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is true. It's worthy of reverence and respect because it really understands human nature. That's where you've got that part there that you mentioned of he shows both the blessedness and the wretchedness of the human condition. Really understands human nature. Christian faith really understands human nature. And then he goes on to say, and it is attractive because it promises the true good. Oh, that's And it's a beautiful statement right there of method in some sense. Now, how do you see that as connecting with the rest of apologetics? And maybe even as we think about this inside-out apologetics approach, how do we do this practically with real people? And we're talking about an apologetics, and we're talking about it at a meta level right now, which there's nothing wrong with. But at some point, we have to move from that down to this very practical level of actually lovingly And with humility, loving a person, a real person with a real story, (laughs) and actually witnessing and sharing the gospel with that person. How do we take Pascal, this grand, beautiful vision he has, and how do we bring that down to actually how we engage with a real person and sharing the gospel with them amid their objections and amid their story with love and with humility?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this is the real challenge, and I think in some of the ways that we have thought about it, if you think about, well, I've got a, I've heard some apologists say, you know, I'm this is about showing the truth that Christianity's true, and it's not about social impact or about whether it's good. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about is it true or not. And I would just say, as a reply to that, those are all connected. And in other words. What's good and beautiful, we can't as humans separate what's what we view as good and beautiful from what is true. They're they're all kind of woven together, and it's a it's a bit more messy than that. And so, when I'm talking to somebody, I find that because we are in a what's increasingly being called a post-Christian society, what's happened is, again, if I can draw on Augustine at this point, you know, Augustine's having to deal as Christianity has kind of taken root in the Roman Empire, but then Rome falls and it looks like the Roman Empire is crumbling. And one of the chief claims about Christianity is that it's not good for society. Well, that's a challenge that Augustine was willing to take on. And I think in some sense, what, what I'm saying and what we can draw out of Pascal as well is that we can't simply say yeah but that's not the question we want to answer we want to answer whether it's true or not because if people are saying hey but i don't see this as good and beautiful they're not going to listen long enough to whether it's true you know they are dismissing that it's true as well but if you begin and this is pascal's point if you begin to say yeah but just imagine if this was the case what if the things that you see as beautiful Aren't simply as a purely evolutionary model teaches us simply kind of leftovers of things that will help us mate better or hunt better, but there's actually beauty in the world from a transcendent creator. Wouldn't that change how you see everything for good? What if there was a God who loves? What if love was something more than simply chemicals? What if the heart of the universe is love? And they say, Yeah, I guess that would be nice, but I can't believe it's true. Well, that's the question I want to get to. But before they but if they're saying Christianity is all bad and it's bad for the world and bad for culture, they don't really have a whole lot of interest in looking into if it's actually true. Now, I also want to say that conversations are complicated and I don't I can't I don't have to force that into a mold. I can I can go and talk resurrection. I think we've got great evidence for the resurrection. I don't think it's going to coercively make someone believe in the resurrection. There's ways around it, but I'm happy to have that conversation. But I don't want to disconnect the truth of the resurrection from the beauty and goodness of the resurrection. And so I want to use multiple angles and have all of that at my disposal because I know they're more than just thinking things.
0: I almost, almost being the key word, I almost hate to follow up such a kind of a heavy, important, and beautiful answer with this question. But what would you think, given what you know of Pascal, what do you think his favorite rock and roll song would have been? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I drew you in with the seriousness of my tone.
2: yeah. I mean, I know my areas of expertise, (laughs) and they're limited. And rock and roll is not one of them. And I, I know I might not ever get invited back on the show, so I don't. I don't have the full selection of songs. What do you think, Eric? Help me here.
0: Oh goodness, goodness! I wasn't prepared for the turn of play there. This is unfair because I'm. This is a word play instead of content. But I mean, Pascal, right? Obviously, with his wager, well, that's not a rock and roll song, so you can't really go there. I was going to give him The Gambler, right? That the Blaise mm-hmm. Pascal would say, you have mm-hmm. to, to know when to hold them and when to fold them. You got to know when to
1: hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your... When I think of Pascal, I think of that first triad of songs on the Joshua Tree by U2, that yearning, that longing, that I still haven't found what I'm looking for, this desperation of, of with or without you. I don't know. I think, I think of Pascal in those, in those terms there. That's kind of what I think of when I think of Pascal. When I read the Pensées, that's the type of emotions that I gather from the Pensées.
2: The thing about Pascal, I mean, I think, again, I'm, I'm avoiding the question, but the thing about Pascal is, <laughs> is, 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 you know, I just think he would not be surprised by the mental health stats we're experiencing right now. I mean, he would just say, yeah, I told you guys this was coming, <laughs> you know, uh, 400 years ago. And so even before the global pandemic, I mean, the the articles were just massive about the mental health crisis, that we're in an age of anxiety, loneliness, and yet we're more connected than ever. What Pascal does is he gives us a kind of—I find myself going back and looking at Pascal to figure out how I'm going to do application for a sermon because he's going to dive in deep to the heart and kind of say, hey, what's really going on here? Something's not right, and you feel it in your bones. And then to be able to point to the good news of Christ—that is something that I think we've got to recover in our apologetic. And this is Charles Matthew, who's the—he's August- an Augustinian scholar at a uh, University of Virginia. He talks about how Augustine's apologetic is therapeutic. I like that term. We've got to do some kind of because of how that term maybe has used. So sometimes I'm very critical in my writings on that term, but I like how what Matthew's saying, because he's saying, this isn't fundamentally for Augustine, contra the pagans. This is for the pagans, because what he wants to do is saying, you have this, you feel that something's not right deep in your bones, and yet you have these deep aspirations and the true God, the true good, the true home is found at the end of the Christian story, and really the author of this Christian story. And I think that that is, to kind of step into that space, that's what gets people at the heart, because they can't escape, they can't escape these kind of pressures and this existential angst, and they feel it even more in the midst of something like a global pandemic. And so that's where I just, again, I haven't answered your (laughs) Your question about the song, but I, I think that's just to develop a little bit more why I think both Pascal and Augustine are needed for for us today. And
1: you know, when you say that, I think about one song that would be descriptive of Pascal would be Jackson Brown running on empty. He understands that people are, are running on empty. I think you I think you're right. I'd not thought of it before, but I think you're right that Pascal would look at the mental health crises that there are and he would not be surprised at all because Garrick knows I never go by the seat of my pants, but I kind of am right now for a few seconds. As I'm kind of putting that together, thinking through. I mean, that in some sense you have Descartes and Pascal that are, are their lives overlap insignificantly in even in science, you know, Pascal is proving that there really is the possibility of a vacuum in nature, of true emptiness in nature, and Descartes is saying they aren't, but that there is no such possibility. But both Descartes and Pascal, they really are both, they're rejecting that older notion that the observations of the world can tell us about transcendent realities. But the way that Descartes solves that issue is by going deep into himself, we might say. But the way Pascal solves that issue is to say that, knowledge of transcendent realities begins with a an engagement of the heart. And the way we engage with a heart is in some sense through a story, through relationships, is what Pascal is is doing in some sense. His answer is not to turn deep, deep, deep inward, cogito ergo sum, that's I think therefore I am, and that becomes this foundation of everything. Instead, Pascal is turned toward story, turned toward engagement of the heart. And he recognizes the emptiness and And he also recognizes what will fulfill that emptiness.
2: He doesn't take the Cartesian pill. And that gives him a distinct kind of
1: approach. On an earlier episode, we talked about the book Telling a Better Story, and did you have any reflections or anything like that? Just thoughts about, you and I corresponded after that, any thoughts you wanted to throw in there that we can include about that? I just wanted to give you an opportunity to do that. Your thoughts about, okay, that was our take on it, and just what your take is on that discussion.
2: Yeah. Well, I was honored that you guys featured the book, and I loved it, and I probably loved it too much. And I I say that as an Augustinian. (laughs) So to know that I'm sure even some of it was kind of just a delight.
0: Were you loving the wrong thing or were you loving the (laughs) right thing improperly? What was going on there?
2: That's the thing about being an introspective Augustine. Eventually, you just have to go to the gospel. (laughs) <laughs> and cling to the cross. But so I loved it and I was I was really grateful for it. But you know, I, I would just say that it's understandable to kind of approach telling a better story, I think, from the dominant categories. Cause as a professor and as a practitioner, when people know something about the field of apologetics, they typically want to know: am I a classical evidentialist or am I a presuppositionalist? And as you guys know, I don't really love the question <laughs> because I think it what it does it's 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 almost like are you a Republican or a Democrat? Okay, we sized you up. Now we'll go on and do what we're going to do. And so there's a there's that element to it. But I think it's normal. We're going to take categories that we kind of use and say, now how does this book fit into that? And so I, I think it was appropriate. The thing I would want to say is I wasn't, especially in this book, wasn't it was a positive book to try to give somebody an approach who doesn't even, isn't even aware of those categories, as you guys know from reading it. So I I wouldn't want people to think, okay, I'm out here to kind of fix presuppositionalism, or I'm out here in the book to kind of fix classical. And I think I've learned things from all of those traditions, and I appreciate them. But I've also, I think what comes out, in the footnotes of the book is I kind of hint towards, as you guys have picked up on Pascal and Augustine, and then I'm, I'm borrowing from a contemporary and, and using a contemporary philosopher and Charles Taylor, and then also C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And so there's this development of an approach that, that I think is inspired more by the list I just gave you than a Van Til or whoever you might mention in a classical approach.
1: Well, this is the time in the program that you have been waiting for. This is the Toy Box Hero Tournament. Yes, that time when we take our children's toys, and after we take them, we place them into combat to the death with one another to determine who would win. And so this week, um, it is my oldest child, and which one my of your children? Oldest. Your my children. oldest. Okay, yes. so we each have our oldest children, which are— Quite a bit apart in age, but uh, nonetheless. (laughs) The battle of the firstborns. That's right. So we are going to sacrifice a firstborn at some level, or at least their toy. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) On this. Escalated really quickly. That did. did. Now, nonetheless, despite the brutality we've already expressed in this, that we're going to sacrifice one of our firstborn children's toys, what do you have from your oldest child? Listen, I really think you should begin because my— Selection is going to
0: require some disclaimers and nuance, if you will. So, um, yeah.
1: yeah. All right. I will go first then. And what I have from the first time that I taught in Australia, I have a kangaroo. (laughs) Yes. Yes. This is from when I taught in Australia Several years ago, first time I went to Australia, and one of the kind people in Australia gave us this amazing kangaroo to my daughter, who was about 12 or so at that time. And so this is a very precious and treasured artifact from the first time we went to Australia, and it's it's fierce. I mean, you look at this. Yes, cuddly, but the back legs on a kangaroo are brutal. Uh, so, when last time we were in Sydney, we went to this this sort of a petting zoo with wallabies and kangaroos and wombats, and you can actually pet. A lot of them. And the kangaroos, though, even though you could pet them, they were all kept behind fences that they would strain their head over and you could pet them. Wallabies, they're bouncing around everywhere and you can cuddle them and pet them and everything like that. But kangaroos. And so if you ask why that is, that is because if a kangaroo gets agitated or angry, it apparently begins kicking with its back legs, with its claws out and can disembowel you by doing so. So a yes, kangaroo i mean i don't know what you've got today but mm-hmm. an animal that can flip back with a tail and legs that can make it leap over vehicles and can utilize those legs by by putting its claws out to disembowel you yes. is is going to be difficult to defeat we just have to recognize that okay
0: i've got thoughts i've got thoughts there but before i get to my thoughts listen I, this this may be the last you might disqualify my eldest after this but we're hitting this very sad moment, not just in the the life of this podcast, but in the life of parenthood. And I don't have any more quote-unquote toys from my eldest to present to you. I've used all of her stuffed animals pretty much, and the only thing that I could really ever bring to the table is... I guess the various Lego sets that we kind of get as a family activities, but those are all kind of Christmas related. And I, so I can only bring you Santa or a reindeer or Mrs. Claus, you know, so often, right? So, so I made a decision to present to you kind of the most important thing in my daughter's life right now. And this is this, you're ready for this. <laughs> This is more of a tool than a toy, but as you'll see, they can be very dangerous tools. What I'm holding up to Timothy right now (laughs) is my daughter's everyday carry, essentially, spa kit or her personal manicure. I don't even know what to call these things, right? It is a case. It looks like a, a mini cigarette case, but instead of cigarettes, that probably comes later in her teenage years, but instead of cigarettes, she has things like eyelash curlers and nail clippers and a pair of tweezers and those really tiny scissors that are like sharper than, I don't even know what these are for. Where does that go? There you go. Look how sharp those are. Timothy, those are, this this is like serious
1: steampunk metal stuff here. That's right. Like
0: she leaves this thing. She leaves this and these tools on the floor all the time in her room because she's constantly using these things. I, I I don't even know how she still has toenails left because I she, see she seems has to, legs left. At <laughs> that's right. At this point, she uses these tools so much that I'm surprised that like eyebrows and things like fingernails, and toenails still exist. So she leaves these on the floor all the time. Well, guess what? She has a two year old sister, so she leaves the stuff on the floor and her door open all the time. Not a few discussions have been had about why
1: that's not OK. I like the cleverness of being able to pedicure a kangaroo. Though having encountered several kangaroos, getting them to submit to a pedicure would be a little bit of an issue right there. But I I think you got something going for it that we could – declaw a kangaroo, and that declawing process would at least eliminate some of the kangaroo's capacity to do damage to us. And so, we're going to declaw the kangaroo here, and I guess we will let the kangaroo exist in its, its glorious little red bowed and declawed state, and he's going to be a, or she is going to be, I, I'm not sure how you tell the gender right here. Do male kangaroos have a pouch? <laughs> If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. I'm Timothy, and I first saw Stevie Wonder in 1986 on television when Denise Huxtable ended up in a fender bender with Stevie Wonder's limousine, just one of the many, many amazing things that did happen in the year 1986. And I'm Garrick, and in 1986,
0: eight-year-old Garrick saw an amazing movie called Top Gun with a questionable scene.
1: Well, this week's song comes from one of our amazing Patreon supporters, Brian Jenkins. He said he would like us to do Superstition by Stevie Wonder. This year, we've mostly done bands that are connected somehow to the British Commonwealth. That's Canada, Australia, Great Britain, all those other areas that speak English but speak it better than we do. And that's what we have focused on. But this year, we're going to actually include one Stevie Wonder song because when our Patreon supporters speak, we actually listen.
0: That's right. And that's because you pay us too. That's what Patreon is. Patreon is a way for you to support the work that we do here, the content that we make, the service we try to provide here at Three Chords and the Truth. And it's really easy. You go to a certain website, patreon.com slash three chords and the truth, and you choose some goodies that you would like to receive in exchange for supporting us on a monthly basis. There are three levels of support, $3, $4 and $5 a month, $5 being one of the greatest values in the history of the world in which not only will you receive our gratitude, our endless gratitude, which is priceless. You'll also get a Three Chords in the Truth journal, an ebook from yours truly, Mr. Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. You'll get to suggest a song for the podcast like this one we're doing today, and you'll get a wonderful, beautiful camp-style coffee mug, which is also priceless because coffee is God's gift to
1: humanity. What it's brought us this time from Brian Jenkins is Stevie Wonder. He has said he wants us to do Stevie Wonder Superstition. Now, I'm always happy to talk about Stevie Wonder, and that's because Stevie Wonder is how I got one of my brothers-in-law. And that's pretty important to me. It's my brother-in-law, Ken. He was driving on the highway past Halltown, Missouri, where we lived at the time, and he was trying to make the decision to whether to move forward in a dating relationship with my older sister, Sherry. And what came on the radio as he was driving by Halltown, Missouri on Interstate 44 was the song... My Cherie Amour by Stevie Wonder. And he decided that he this was his sign basically to tell him to pursue this with Sherry, my sister. And so that changed my life. And so it was it was sort of like when I listened to Ario Speedwagon and heard can't fight that feeling anymore. When I was trying to decide to go forward with the woman who became my wife. And so basically, what has changed my life, made my life what it is, is Jesus, Stevie Wonder, and Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> and so there you have it, folks. And Stevie Wonder also did a great happy birthday song, too. <laughs> yeah. How fitting that we're talking about superstition today in light
0: of such <laughs> stories that you bring us. I the me as a summer
1: Well, this song we're talking about today is superstition. And what we're going to be exploring as we think through this is on what basis do we believe what we believe? That's what we're going to be looking at. What's the basis on which we believe what we believe? what we actually choose to believe. And so, to do that, we're going to look at Stevie Wonder and superstition. Well, Stevie Wonder, believe it or not, was not born Stevie Wonder. That was not what his name was when he was born. He was born Steveland Hardaway Judkins, and uh, that would have been difficult to really market very well, Steveland Hardaway Judkins. He was born in 1950 in Saginaw, Michigan, which is about 100 miles north of Detroit, and he was 6 weeks premature and that caused a retinal detachment, some of the treatments he received after that that caused complications. So from just a few days old, he was blind. And they moved when he was young to Detroit. And when I saw that at first, I thought, maybe they moved to South Detroit. Maybe he's the person who was born and raised in South Detroit. And maybe he's the one that that was being talked about in that wonderful song from Journey. He's, Don't Stop He's believing. the streetlight person. He is the streetlight person who was born and raised in South Detroit. But alas, it wasn't in South Detroit that he went at all. And he got his musical start at Whitestone Baptist Church in Detroit. That's also where he was baptized. He made a profession of faith, was baptized at Whitestone Baptist Church in Detroit.
0: So, from a couple of Baptists, world, you're welcome. That's right. We Baptists bring you a lot of good things including Stevie
1: Wonder. There you go. That's Stevie Wonder. The yeah. We we provided you with religious liberty and Stevie Wonder yes. too. Yes. both great <laughs> things. So,
0: Steveland, I've uh, not a name I've ever heard on any other individual. That's uh, very interesting. Well, when Steveland was 11 years old, Motown Records signed him to a 10-year contract. That's unbelievable. They called him Little Stevie Wonder. And they paid him $2.50 each week, which would amount to about $22 per week today. And in 1963, Little Stevie Wonder became the youngest person ever, ever, to have a number one Billboard hit. Gosh, that's nuts. Uh, He was 13 years old, and the song was entitled... Fingertips, which his fingertips were very small at 13 years Pretty old. Pretty amazing. But, uh,
1: they were still magical. <laughs> they were, although oddly enough, on this particular piece, he didn't play piano. We so associate him with keyboards, and I he know. didn't. He played harmonica on this particular song. In 1971, he turned 21, and he negotiated a brand new contract. And he really made sure he knew what he was doing on this. It's a 120-page contract that gave him absolute and utter complete control over his music. He got the music, the, the money they'd been saving up in trust that he'd been earning. He received that at that time, began to receive that money. But he got total artistic control, and he then cranks out three albums that are just some of the most incredible music that was produced in the early 1970s. Music of my mind, talking book, and inner visions. And so his style previous to that had been Motown, that the Motown style, which we know from the Supremes, the Jackson 5, the Marvelettes, all of those like that. And Motown was really instrumental, we've got to remember, in racial integration, because Motown was some of the first music that white audiences began to support and purchase the work of african-american artists but stevie wonder he then begins to move away from that motown sound much toward soul and funk i mean it really he develops this really distinct piano-based soul and funk sound he starts to address things like systemic injustice racial injustice in his music at this point And so what happened was Jeff Beck, who's actually a guitar player, sat down at the drums and was just messing around on the drums. And Stevie Wonder just jumps in and starts playing this riff on the piano or on the keyboard along with the drums. And this song then develops out of that. And the first words he started to sing, just kind of jamming to this tune that he was coming up with and this chord structure he was coming up with, were these words that do appear in the final version of the song, Wash Your Face and Hands, which he takes from the song Shake, Rattle, and Roll, the classic rock song, the sort of oldies-type rock song. Shake, Rattle, and Roll has a phrase in there, wash your face and hands. And he starts singing that just to try to get the song rolling, and he doesn't write the lyrics to it until later. But it does develop into the song Superstition, which hit number one on the Billboard charts on January 27th, 1973. So 11 days after I was born, Superstition hits the Billboard charts at number one. So everyone should say,
0: you know, thank you to Timothy as well. It's, I, I believe it was your, your birth that brought along
1: clearly. But Stevie Wonder, he begins, yeah, the song by listing a bunch of superstitions. And he does so in kind of a fun, artistic way. He's listing all these different things that people believe bring bad luck. Walking under a ladder, a 13-month-old baby, breaking a looking glass, all of these things here. And this whole notion of a superstition is, is so fascinating to me because it is something that people believe without actually reflecting on it. C. S. Lewis talks about how in the introduction to screw tape letters that there are two equal and opposite errors we can fall into when it comes to these things we don't understand. And that is we can either attribute them in an unhealthy way that gives an overemphasis to the demonic realm, an overemphasis to the satanic realm, or we can act as if there is no influence at all from any demonic or satanic realm. And that's what he recognizes that we have to have a balanced view of that, not a dualistic view that sees Satan in charge of the world, but not, on the other hand, a view that sees no place for Satan and no place for things that we can't explain in the world. And uh, that's one of the things that, that is just an interesting kind of theme we see throughout church history in different theologians, in different times and places. Well, it seems like in this particular song, he's speaking of superstition in the sense we're talking about it, but it also seems like Stevie Wonder is getting at far more than merely the superstitions. It seems like there's more going on in Stevie Wonder's mind right here. It seems like there's a sense in which he's actually pushing back against any beliefs that we pick up, that we absorb, but we never think critically about them. It seems like that's part of what's going on. The things beneath the surface that you're, you're maybe not even consciously aware of. And uh, there's a line in there that you mentioned earlier uh, that we've talked about of wash your hands and face. You don't want to save me. Sad is my song. And and like you said, those are the the words of the song that make the least sense. I think what he's trying to say right there, I think when he speaks of wash your hands and face, you don't want to save me, is these beliefs you pick up along the way, you can't just wash them away. No matter how hard you try, you can't just wash them away and, and just get rid of them. You have to think, you have to understand, you have to critically consider them. And that brings us to the thing we'll be focusing on for the last few minutes of our our time in talking about this, and that is why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe this? Why do we not believe in certain things that are superstitious? And why should we believe what we believe? Is it just because we picked up our beliefs along the way? That we believe what we believe, and in if so, if, is that a problem? And it's especially when it comes about to beliefs about God and about the spiritual world. Why do we believe what we believe, and why should we believe what we believe? Yeah, you know, the key words in
0: this song are we've said them. When you believe in things that you don't understand, you suffer. Superstition ain't the way, right? So this seems to suggest that you should refrain from believing in anything, I suppose, until you can understand that thing which you were wanting to believe in or deciding whether to believe in or not. So understand before you believe or understand so that you can
1: believe, perhaps would be more accurate. So that brings us to this question that really is important for Looking at church history, looking at theology, and that is, should understanding come before belief? In the sense, we would answer that yes and no, because in some sense, if we mean by understanding, if we mean knowledge, that there has to be some knowledge of some sort, well, you can't really believe or shouldn't believe until you know what it is you're actually believing But there's a really crucial concept that can be traced back to and in some sense through Augustine of Hippo, and it's this phrase, fides quarants intellectum, or faith-seeking understanding. And here's what Augustine, at least in part, was getting at here, that we really have to believe, have a disposition of belief before we can understand at all. In other words, Faith is a disposition of love and trust that opens the door to understanding. And so, in some sense, faith comes before understanding, that you don't really fully understand something until after you have faith and trust and, in some sense, a loving disposition that opens you to understanding something. And so, understanding doesn't precede faith in this sense— Rather, faith is seeking understanding. Faith is something that we have, and from faith, we seek to understand. Which is a a theme
0: that shows up over and over in Christian history,
1: in the history of Christian
0: thought, right? We've talked about this somewhat important guy named Augustine, a bunch, in this program before. There's a quote by Michael Polanyi who says that, Augustine brought the history of Greek philosophy to a close by inaugurating, for the first time, a post-critical philosophy. He taught that all knowledge was a gift of grace, and we must strive under the guidance of prior belief, of antecedent belief. Isaiah 7-9, unless you believe, you will not understand. We must now recognize belief once more as the source of all knowledge, right? It's, again, the words, paraphrased words of bombing. faith has its own type of certainty,
1: but it is certainty, no less, and true knowledge. And if the evidence against what you're believing is, is strong— then you have a responsibility to step away from it or reconfigure what you believe. And that's where we begin to see that evidence isn't against faith. That even when we say faith is seeking understanding, evidence is not against faith. Evidence is something that I like what B.B. Warfield said. He said, faith is not given against evidence, but with evidence. Faith is indeed the gift of God, but it does not follow that the faith which God gives is an irrational faith. And I think that's really something brilliantly stated and, and well summarized right there that we can believe, we can trust, and we have good reason, a la Alvin Plantinga, for us to do so but at the same time we have to listen for and seek and consider other evidences as we seek to discover what is actually true we have this this choice when trying to figure
0: out the essence of religion and the religious phenomena that come from faith belief all that kind of stuff they're either kind of simply psychological results, right, which Feuerbach calls delusion, right, so these are all delusions, or these things are grounded, prayer and faith and things that come along with religion, they're grounded in a reality that lies behind them. And we would say, along with Inc, that religion, with all its ideas, sensations, and actions can only be maintained as reality when it rests in revelation. And then he goes on to say, and that revelation at once provides the criterion by which religious phenomena, conversion, faith, prayer, and so on can be assessed. And so I would say faith is not the ground of truth, that all truth is is grounded in Revelation, And I would say that revelation is
1: one of – part of that evidence which you speak of. And I think that's where Warfield, who actually takes a somewhat different perspective on some of this. And so we've got different voices that aren't necessarily in discord with one another, but they're certainly giving different angles on this. And I'll lean toward Warfield on that, that I think Warfield provides a helpful – Corrective, or at least a supplement to this, where he says, "Look, you do believe, and, that, and that's that's completely valid. What you you simply believing, but at the same time, God with that gives evidence alongside." the revelation. There is evidence that goes alongside the revelation. So when we look at scripture, we see that yes, there is scripture itself, but scripture does not fall out of the sky in a singular point in time. It's not given and written on golden plates that only one person can see. It's not given in a cave from a, from an angel, but rather it is given in history in time over time. And because of that, it also leaves behind evidences all along the way. And so there is evidence that comes alongside the revelation, of course, supremely. That's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there was evidence that comes alongside that, the evidence that we see of transformed lives, of a church that exists and not only exists but multiplies, of the texts that we have in Scripture, all of those things are evidences that come alongside revelation.
0: And just to remind folks that in this sense, dealing a little bit more with the narrative of the worldviews, kind of what you just said there is very much at the heart of Josh Chatro's book that we did a whole episode on, Telling a Better Story. It is a helpful, accessible read and and also not crazy long. And I said before, and this was kind of before the semester started, I said before that I was using it in worldview class that I taught this last semester And kind of the consistent feedback that I got from students was that they were very thankful that this book was a a part of the reading. Even even though it wasn't like explicitly a quote-unquote worldview book, that it's technically more of an apologetics book, they found it super helpful. And I think listeners would be well-served by picking this up and, and working through it slowly over some time. It's very helpful, I think, in this area. So what about Stevie Wonder himself? What does he believe? And how did he come to those beliefs from
1: your research? Well, as I looked at this, what I discovered is the only answer to that is it's complicated. Mm, (laughs) It's really complicated. Yes, it's very much like like a Facebook relationship. It's it's quite complicated. Because on the one hand, he's made a profession of faith, and he speaks explicitly about faith in Jesus a lot of times. And uh, we'll we'll talk about that. in In 2011, there's a point at which he was leading some worship songs and said thing something like this. He said, "I'm very happy to be here praising God because this is where we give our praise to our Father God, singing a song about the love I have for my God and His Son Jesus Christ." I mean, that's yeah, pretty explicit. That's, yes, very. And, and, and he doesn't have to say that. This was spoken in the moments. I think there's a sincerity. About him in this. And yet at the same time, he practices transcendental meditation because it works for him. And one of his wives that he'd been married to taught him transcendental. Meditation, and so you see this kind of contradiction here. You see it in in 2012, he made a comment that I think was a very balanced comment—not hateful, not mean—but he spoke of how, in his opinion, homosexuals, many persons pursuing a homosexual lifestyle, were just very confused about their sexuality, and he he stated this not in a hateful way, but in a in a way that was very compassionate and yet clear. I think he was defaulting to Christian ethics at that point. Which, in his industry, is not something that you do. And you immediately found out that it wasn't something you do because the backlash he got on this. And so within a few weeks after this this statement was made and he receives all this backlash, he says, love is love, and he affirms homosexual relationships. So again, you have this this strange dynamic right here. On the one hand, he says at one point, my greatest joy is to please God. And and even if you listen to his songs, like his— wonderful song, Isn't She Lovely?, which he writes about his daughter, an infant daughter. And when he's singing that song, there's part of that song in which he thanks God. He has a very clear thanking God for this child. So, you got all these different, my joy is to please God. I'm thankful to God. And yet, on the other hand, he says at one point, for example, for those of you who might be Muslim, please the God you serve. If it's Allah, whatever your religion is, like I said before, it's not about the religion, it's about the relationship. And so, you've got this statement and, and on the other hand, he speaks of of love and of the love of God and everything like that. But he said nine children by five different women, three marriages, two divorces. He's a man of contradictions in that. It seems like, and this is what's fascinating to me in light of this particular song, when it comes to the Christian faith and his life, he's kind of done what he criticizes in this song. He he grew up with it and he's assimilated it. But he hasn't thought critically about, does the life that I live actually fit with what I say I believe? He hasn't, he's accepted the beliefs that he was raised with at Whitestone Baptist Church in Detroit, but he hasn't really considered or critiqued or understood the implications of that for the way he actually lives of his life and even what he says that he believes. He says he believes in Jesus. That
0: goes back to those consistencies and inconsistencies which you mentioned earlier
1: yeah, it really does. It's it's this idea of our, our beliefs that we practice really congruent with the world as we experience it and what we ourselves even say that we believe. And there's this contradiction in him in this in which this man who who sings a song says you need to to understand things at some level if you're going to believe them. And as we've seen, that's not entirely wrong. <laughs> there is a sense in which even if you believe something, you need to think through it and think through the evidence for it and critically consider it, but it seems like that he hasn't really totally done that himself. And so he says when you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. And one of the ways that you suffer in this life is, is living a life of, of contradiction. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. Well, as always, this is the time in the program that you have been waiting for, and that is Toy Box Hero. Yes, the Toy Box Hero tournament in which we take choi to take let's start over on the shake choice. <laughs> take, um, take joy, Take choice. Box joy. I'm pretty yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a, something you can get at an Asian buffet. <laughs>